John 13, verse 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. May God bless the reading of the word. Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he, after each thing he created, he said it was good, right? Except for the last thing he created. When he created humanity, he said it was very good. And then he rested. And we might say that everything was working perfectly. You might say that normal was in fact working. But now we look around us, we look, we don't have to look far, right? We look in the mirror. We look in the news, and we know that normal isn't working anymore. Something happened, and things are broken. And in this series in which we've been talking about how to get better spiritually and addressing the fact that normal isn't working, we've looked at several spiritual disciplines, uh, simplicity, solitude, submission, Self-denial, in other words, things that, that we believe will help if you practice the discipline, will help you get better, will help you look more like Christ, will help things work the way that they were intended to work when God created. And this week in particular, as we wrap this series up for 2017, I believe strikes at the very root of our problem. And what is the root of our problem? Why isn't normal working? And I want to suggest that if we want to find out what the root of our problem is, we have to go back to the beginning. And perhaps, you know, if you've been at church much or you're very familiar with Christianity, then you might know and remember this, the story, the, the, the creation narrative, and, and about the fall of man, about Adam and Eve, a, a garden, 
a tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which God said do not eat a serpent who came and tempted and then Eve and then Adam took the fruit these stories you know aren't just fanciful stories a, a neat way and they aren't just about hey God created the heavens and the earth this is important to Christians Jesus placed an, an extreme value on, on this himself he referenced the creation narratives his apostles did as well so we can rest assured that there is a lot of truth there for us to unpack and in fact that, that story of the fall of man of the fall of humankind is the backdrop to the gospel because if, if that hadn't happened if sin hadn't entered the world if humankind had not rejected God and his ways there would have been no need for Jesus to come there would have been no need for Jesus to die or for Jesus to resurrect and normal would be working but it's not working. And so, uh, so we look at, at the source, the beginning, the first time when Eve and then Adam took that fruit and, and decided essentially that they wanted to place themselves in God's shoes. That, that they wanted to decide what was right and what was wrong for them to do. And in a sense, that's the root of our problem, isn't it? That's the thing that still strikes at the heart of what all of us struggle with. Is we want to place ourselves on God's throne. We want to be the ones to decide what is right and what is wrong. Or whether there is a God and if there is what He's like. And we see this in our world today more than ever before. A culture and a society that makes up its own rules, that doesn't really care about any standardized truth, whether that's in the Bible or anything else. Uh, even even the people in our society who do believe in God and, and do believe in Jesus, oftentimes they take the parts that they like and leave the parts that they don't like and make something that works for them. Because at the heart of us, the problem that we have is that we want to be God. We want to decide what's right and what's wrong. We want to get our way. That's what happened at the fall. That's what still happens in our lives today. You can call that what you like, but today I'm going to call it pride. A, a particular kind of pride. Pretty audacious pride that says, no, I, I want to be my own God. I'll reject God and His ways. I want to do my way. And this spiritual discipline today, I believe, strikes at the very heart of that, the very root of our problem, at pride itself. Now, if we wanted to be if we wanted to do battle with pride, it seems like the right answer would be just to become humble, right? Humility being the opposite of pride. Just go get humble. <laughs> but that's easier said than done, isn't it? And if we're not careful, uh, it's easy for an attempt to be humble or to force humility comes off as, as a false kind of humility, doesn't it? And, and we can all sniff out a, a false humility. And really, in, in some ways, that's the most kind of disgusting form of pride, isn't it? <laughs> kind of a false 
humility. Jesus' way that he describes for us and that he modeled for us is so others-focused, but we're also me-focused. How do you address that? How do you hit that head-on? How do you challenge that? How do you fight that? How do you do battle with that if you can't just make yourself be humble? Well, certainly, we need the Holy Spirit's help with that. Uh, Certainly, we are inspired by Christ's example. And when we encounter the gospel, when we respond to it by confessing and admitting how wrong we've gotten it and how desperately we need His forgiveness, well, that's a big step, isn't it? Towards humility. That's, That's the first step of just owning the fact that you need God and you need a Savior. But beyond that, how do we work on it? How do we put to death the pride in our life? And I want to suggest to you today that one way, a really good way that we do that, is through this discipline of service that stood at the heart of what Jesus had to teach us about His way of doing things. And so we have this account in the book of John about Jesus washing feet. And we kind of have two challenges before us today if we want to really kind of get what was going on there. And I would call them unfamiliarity and familiarity. On the one hand, we are unfamiliar with the whole foot washing thing in our culture, as a culture. Even if you've done foot washing as a a church thing uh, before, or you've washed someone's feet as just kind of a symbolic thing of, um, you know, that's great. And you've experienced something that those who haven't done that, you know, can't grasp. It's a, it's a unique and it's a, it's a special moment. But even so, as, as something that's just a part and of the fabric of our culture, we don't get it the way that they got it, Right? It's very unfamiliar, the whole, the whole concept. On the other hand, if, if you grew up in church at all, you probably heard a lot about foot washing. And this story has probably come up time and again, especially around Easter and, and Good Friday and Palm Sunday and all that. Because when we talk about that week, this is one of the things we talk about, that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And so the story for a lot of us has become very familiar. And so on the one hand, we don't, we don't get it. <laughs> And on the other hand, we're familiar with the story. And so today, I want to just challenge you to really try and engage your imagination a little bit. And put yourself in the room. And try to put yourself in the culture. And I'm going to help the best I can. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us get this this morning. Jesus lived in a society, an ancient Middle Eastern society where there were huge divisions and, and separate classes of people. and uh, I mean, there wasn't much of a middle class the way that we're used to having a middle class. There were rich people and powerful people. And then there were you know, a couple different kinds of poor people. You had the kind of free poor people who maybe they practiced a craft or a trade, you know, carpentry or fishing. Or, or maybe they sold things in the marketplace, or whatever the case may be. And then you also had those who were servants or slaves. 
And they served the rich people in return for their necessities, the things that they needed to live. And there was obviously a clear pecking order. And there was respect and honor given to those in positions that warranted that. And then the people who didn't have servants and slaves of their own, they didn't receive that. And they, in fact, paid respect and honor to those in power. Uh, there were divisions between men and women and, and children and uh, I mean even between different races and I mean the, the list goes on and on and there was it was just accepted in that culture and that's, that's hard for us to wrap our brains around in, in our culture this idea that, that someone would say yeah well this is a more important, important person than me this is a you know they, they are in some way we're not equal Okay, they, they're here, and I'm here. And that's hard for us Americans to wrap our minds around, because our history is founded on saying, no, all men are created equal. But really, if you, I was surprised, the, the little, when I was studying history in college, you know, I, I, one of my favorite parts of history was colonial America. And when we think of colonial America, a lot of times we think of tea partiers, we think of, uh, you know, the... Revolution. We think of you know them fighting the British, you know the redcoats and and uh, Paul Revere and all these you know the Sons of Liberty and but we forget that that was they were still kind of in process at that point and there was even in that culture not much of a middle class and a lot of deference shown and and when someone for instance would walk into I mean. A rich guy and a poor guy could be in the same tavern, and the and the poor guy would call the rich guy sir, and would show respect and deference. I even heard one story. This was not always the case. There were certainly cases where crowds and mobs got unruly and and did uh, some you know people governing officials' lives were at risk. But I heard one story that just shocked me and kind of put the whole thing in perspective that of a crowd that was angry as they often got angry and, and they gathered outside of this governing official's home and uh, maybe you're familiar with the term, term uh, burning in effigy and what they would do is they'd make a dummy that looked like the, the guy that they were mad at and then they'd light it on fire or hang it by a noose or whatever and carry it around town you know and, and they were doing this in this guy's front yard and it's pretty bold <laughs> You think about the, the implications of that and that some crowds did, you know, they did do some, they lynched, you know, leaders or, or uh, you know, tar and feather and all those kinds of things that we read about in history but seem so foreign to us. But in this particular case, the, the governing official eventually walked out on his front porch and essentially told him, all right, fellas, that's enough. Y'all going home now. And they did. And, and sometimes, you know, we read the, the histories and we think, you know, America's always just been about, you know, no, we're all equal and no governing officials any better than me. And, and, uh, but there was a day when we understood and people just, uh, you know, accepted that, hey, this guy has authority and, and I don't. And, and, and there was deference and respect shown. And, and Jesus lived in such a time to the extreme. And Jesus was one of those people. When you became a rabbi, a teacher... When you had disciples that followed you around, you became someone that in their society received a lot of respect and deference. 
And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Jesus once told a parable. He was trying to get the point across about how, uh, you know, when we're God's servants and we're doing the things we're supposed to do as God's servants, that we shouldn't get this idea that, that God owes us something because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Right? And so he told this story about a master and a slave and, and just kind of said, hey, if you had a slave and he came in from working all a long, hard day, would you say, oh, you've worked a long, hard day. Sit down there and let me take care of you. No. You'd say, bring me my supper and when you're done serving me for the day, then you can take care of yourself. <laughs> That's just how it works. And he said, so also, when you do what you're supposed to do for God, don't sit around waiting for God to you know, do something special for you in return, but just say, hey, I did what I was supposed to do. That's kind of hard for us to swallow sometimes in our culture. But everyone listening to that would have totally understood what Jesus was saying. I mean, it would be unheard of and like anarchy to start if, you, if masters started serving servants and slaves. And yet Jesus was about to upend things in that room that night as they prepared to take the last meal together and as he prepared to give his life for them. As he wrapped that towel around his waist and took the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, you can rest assured that there was shock in the room. It wasn't just, oh Jesus, you shouldn't do that. No, they would have been disturbed by this. Perhaps disgusted. They, they may have been sick to their stomach. Because this was so not right in their culture. This was unheard of in their culture. This was the job for the lowest of the servants. Never for the master. It was inappropriate. So you have Peter saying, uh-uh, not going to do it. Not going to happen. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this because there's not very many people that we have that kind of respect for in our day and time. I mean, I don't know, maybe once upon a time in our country's history there were there was a, a respect for the office of president, but nowadays most people have more respect for their dog than president, right? And, uh, I mean, who, who is it in your life that you would have that kind of deference and respect for, that if they did some kind of service to you, you'd be appalled? I was trying to think of examples. I, I don't have much. I, I thought of, you know, if you, if you have a particular, maybe, love and respect for your mother... And she did a lot for you. And, and you just have a, she has a special place in your heart. And, and she's getting up in, in years and not able to do as much as she used to could do. And so you and your sibling, you try to look after her. Uh, and, and one week it was your sibling's turn to mow the yard for her. And he's not doing it. And you're mad. You already had your turn. You're going to wait it out and, and see how high the grass gets before that sibling finally gets out there and does it. And you drive by one day and there's your mom out there, feeble, but out there on the lawnmower. How would you feel? That's imperfect, but maybe it's getting a little bit closer to the feeling that the disciples would have had. Sometimes I think the only person that we have that kind of 
respect for their authority anymore. That kind of honor for anymore is perhaps Jesus himself. If Jesus himself walked in the room, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, your Savior, I think that most of us (laughs) would feel in awe of that. So I was trying to think, and this is again maybe a poor example, a poor illustration, but I was trying to think of jobs that we hate to do around here at the church. Uh, You know, I mean, I don't know, taking the trash out, doing the dishes, uh, plunging the toilet. No one likes to plunge the toilet. So I just want to, this is crazy, but say you walk in there and and the toilet's backed up and you say, "Uh uh-uh, not going to happen. So you just step out and think someone else is going to do this. And, uh, and then someone else goes in and says, mm-mm, mm-mm, <laughs> don't want to do that. And, and pretty soon there's kind of an awkward crowd lingering around the bathroom area, uh, hoping that someone is going to flush <laughs> or plunge this toilet. And around the corner walks Jesus, and walks right by, and walks in and does the job that no one else wanted to do. How would you feel? If that feels almost sacrilegious or something to talk about, that's the point. (laughs) That's how the disciples would have felt. This is completely inappropriate. Why is Jesus doing this? But see, the worst part of it, I think, for them probably would have been the shame. Kind of like we would feel if we were standing around waiting for someone else to do it. Because that's exactly what I believe the disciples were doing. I'm not trying to read minds here, but when we read the other accounts of what was taking place that night, we know one of the things that was taking place was an ongoing argument that the disciples had between each other about which of them was going to be the most important in the kingdom. See, they lived in a society where everyone had a pecking order. And and they were trying to work theirs out. Who was going to be the most important among them? Who was going to be the least important among them? So I don't doubt that in this room of dirty feet needing to be washed but no servant there to do it having just had this argument maybe it's even still going on all those disciples are sitting there thinking I wonder who's going to end up washing feet tonight. Not going to be me. Mm -mm. I'm up here. I think it ought to be him. (laughs) Clearly not as important. And they're all in their heads trying to work out who's who and who's going to be in authority and who's not going to be in authority and who's the most important disciple and who's the least important disciple. And they all have their idea of who ought to be grabbing that basin and that towel. But it's not them. And the shame when Jesus walks over to that basin and picks it up and begins to do the job that none of them wanted to do Jesus was not undermining leadership here. In fact, if we read what he had to say, it said, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. He said, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. 
He went on and said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. He wasn't undermining leadership. He knew his place in the room. He was maybe redefining leadership and saying, in the world, leadership is about getting everyone else to do something for you. But in my kingdom, leadership is about doing something for other people. We're going to be defined by serving. And everyone in the room, everyone in the room would have been so humbled by that. Can you imagine? Can you place yourself there, in that room? Can you picture Jesus taking your feet? I want to suggest to you today that practicing servanthood is a pride killer. Pride is the reason that none of those disciples wanted to pick up that basin. Jesus had the humility to do what those beneath him weren't even willing to do. What are we willing to do? I want to suggest today that if we'll practice the discipline of serving others, we will deal some major blows to the root of our problem, that pride that wants to place ourselves at the center of everything. That's so me-focused when Jesus' way is so others-focused. So let's practically talk about two types of service. And there's other kinds, and you'll, you'll think of ways that you can serve and practice this discipline of serving. But I want to give you two types, and then I want to leave you with a warning. The first type is hidden service. We're talking about a spiritual discipline here that strikes at the root of pride. And not every kind of serving does that. But hidden service does that. Hidden service is, is when you serve someone and it's hidden. It's anonymous. It's behind the scenes. They may never know about it. Or if they do find out about it, certainly not the whole world is going to know about it. No one's going to hand you a plaque or give you a round of applause or a standing ovation. It's just quiet. It's behind the scenes. So think about, you know, what does this look like in your life? Do you, can you go home today and do something for your spouse or for your parents or for your sibling? Yes, even your sibling. <laughs> that would be hidden. That you wouldn't get credit for. And just serve them anyway. What if it was even your enemy? Someone you can't get along with at work or at home. And you did some act of service for them without them even knowing about it, without you getting credit for it. What would that look like? And that deals a blow to pride. There's another kind of service called small stuff service. Just little things. Unimpressive acts of service. See, sometimes when we serve, we want it to be big. You know, go big or go home. It's, it's not worth my time if it's not going to make a huge difference. And so, you know, I mean, around the church, we might say, 
we're not going to do it unless, you know, we're not going to do Christmas gifts unless we're going to do, you know, like 150 shoeboxes and, and put them together and it's going to make 11 million, which is what our shoeboxes did. Isn't that awesome? 11 million. And, and send them over there. You know, we're not going to do it unless we can go big. Or, or we're not going to serve a meal unless we can go to Grace Place and serve 250 in once. And those ministries are great. I'm not, <laughs> I'm the champion for those things. But what I'm saying is sometimes when we practice the discipline of service, it's about the little things that aren't impressive. About doing the things that, you know, you're not going to say, look at what I did. Hey, my goodness, I served 250 meals today. It's just the small stuff, the little things. When you look at Jesus' ministry, yes, there's those moments that are so famous where he's feeding 5,000 people or, he, you know, doing these incredible things, but... When you read the Gospels, it's the little things. How he made time for everybody. Even the lowliest people. Even mother-in-laws. Even, even uh, oh, children. Little children who were undervalued in that society in so many ways. And people said, Jesus doesn't have time for you, but he took time for them. It's the small stuff. It's wrapping the towel around your waist and washing your disciples' feet. So, two types of service. Hidden and small stuff. And sometimes you can combine those two and have hidden small stuff service. And lastly, a warning. There's a kind of service that ends up prideful. A kind of self-righteous service that we have to guard against. For instance, there's a kind of service that is overly concerned with results. You know, that, you know, you want, again, it's the big stuff thing. You want big results if you're going to serve. Or it's the kind of service that expects something in return, expects reciprocation. Uh, Oh, you might not say that up front, but, you know, a year down the road, you're like, man, I did all that stuff for them. Seems like they owe me a little something. There's the kind of service that's choosy about which kind of people you're willing to serve. Oh, I'd love to serve them. I'm not really interested in serving them. I know their type. They don't deserve it. There's the kind of service that only serves when you feel like it or when it's convenient for your schedule rather than seeing a need that needs to be met, knowing you can, and doing it even if it's inconvenient. Inconvenient. I think I just made up a word there with inconvenient. I think uh, Ben Schuler, when he was here, was talking about that, that kind of serving. Serving when we see a need that needs to be met, and not just when it's convenient for us. A, a kind of service that just serves when it's convenient is not really going to do much to kill our pride. There's a kind of self-righteous service that insists on serving other people even when it's not helpful. This happens sometimes. We decide we want to do a good deed. They don't really need it, but we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) It's not really going to help them in the long run, but it's going to look good right now, and it's going to feel good to us to do something for someone else even if it's not what they wanted, not what they needed. Churches are guilty of this a lot of times. And there's even a kind of self-righteousness that refuses to be served. Isn't there? Like Peter 
You're not going to do that to me. Uh uh-uh. uh. And in the name of kind of a false humility, we, say, we, we refuse to let people come and serve us sometimes. I can do it, I don't need help. And so, as we strive to do this discipline of service, let's beware of those kinds of service that are still kind of rooted in pride. And stick to things like hidden service. And the serving in small things. That we don't expect some kind of applause. We don't expect anything in return. We're just doing it. Because that's what Jesus did. That's the example He set. That's what He called us to do. That's what He did for us on the cross, right? So, what would it look like if we embrace this as a church? What might we do? You know, might we as a church sometimes be willing you know, just to help one family that we can help? And not feel like we have to do a bunch of little things for a bunch of people and make it sound big? Can we just sometimes focus on, on little things, one person? You know, can we do things in the community and around where we're not expecting anything in return? I think that's something that churches have trouble with sometimes. is because we, we want to do something and, and then we want our, our name to get out somehow. Uh, and, and our motives might be good even that, that you know, hopefully they'll come to our church, they'll hear the gospel and so forth. Sometimes we just need to serve because that's what we're supposed to do. We'll talk more about that in, in, a, few day, in a few weeks. But... Uh, Sometimes you just, I mean, that's what Jesus taught us to do, is just to serve. And we don't need to expect something in return, necessarily. What would this look like in your life? As you go about your life this week, at work and at home and everywhere in between. Are the things that you could do that normally you might would hesitate to do, but you were practicing this discipline of service then you might would do them differently you might do it a little quieter or you might um, stop thinking that something is too small or too inconvenient sometimes there's a need that you know you could meet it just seems like a waste of time or insignificant it might not be insignificant to the person you serve and it certainly wouldn't be insignificant to Christ. But more than anything, perhaps, we remember that practicing servanthood is a pride killer. And that's something we desperately need if we want to get better, spiritually or much of any way, as far as God's concerned, isn't it? Let's pray together. Would you stand? Father, thank you forever and always leading by example and never asking anything of us that you weren't willing to do. We thank you, God, for the gospel accounts and that we can know what you did and what you showed your disciples, the example you set for us, even in that room with the basin and the towel as you washed their feet and taught them to do likewise. Even to the cross. And God, we admit our struggle with pride. 
and how it even influences our attempts at serving sometimes, but teach us to destroy our pride, to kill our pride, to, to serve humbly. We need your Holy Spirit's help in this, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.